Welcome to Founders Unfiltered by a junior VC. We are your hosts, Mazin and Aviral. Aviral, when you're starting a business, how do you get to know your customers? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I think it's something that a lot of founders in the early days actually do really well um, because the scale of the business is really small. So what they would do is they would go and talk to potential customers talk to people, make them try the product or the solution that they have. And that's how they come up with the insight on what they want to solve. I think knowing your customers at a later stage is the harder question. And a lot of founders actually forget that. I think some of the best founders that I know, they speak to customers every day, even today, even when their companies have raised many rounds of financing, they're much bigger. They're very connected to the ground. Um, and I think the, you know, the answer is very, very simple. It's not very tough. You just need to pick up the phone and talk to your customer and, you know, answering your question on how do you go about knowing your customer? It is talking to them as regularly as possible. Like very simply just being regular with it and getting on a phone or doing a chat or exchanging emails and backing it up with data that talks about customer behavior. So anything that measures metrics related to customer feedback, like an NPS, uh, customer retention churn. Um, I think these two are the best ways to, you know, know your customer. And it's more meaningful when the company is at a certain size. It certainly is something a lot of founders forget and it's so important to do it every day. In this week's episode of Founders Unfiltered, we speak to Sumit, the founder of Rupik. Sumit grew up in a small town full of business owners. His family nudged him towards a STEM education, which was considered the unconventional path. He got into IIT Bombay, where he met a fantastic peer group and was exposed to different extracurricular activities. His interest in economics and the stock market led him to get a job as an equity analyst at an international firm. While working, Sumit discovered a unique problem in the fintech space. Indians have very high physical asset ownership, yet asset-backed lending is really small. In 2015, he started Rupik to fulfill unprecedented demand. He believes understanding customers is an ongoing process, and one should keep running experiments to continue to learn. He considers healthy competition to be useful and suggests founders focus on the opportunity at hand and double down on what their users need. Today, Rupik has served over 1 lakh happy customers across 25 cities. Join us to learn how Sumit built and grew Rupik to facilitate lending in India. Hey Sumit, thank you so much for taking our time to speak to us. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Aviral. Thanks for having me over. So, Sumit, you have a very interesting journey to here and not a lot of people actually know that you started up before this. This is not your first startup and straight out of college, you experimented with things. So, we'd love to know a little bit more about your journey, maybe growing up, few anecdotes that have become helpful for you today and going on to IIT Bombay, working at a few companies, starting your own company and then to Rupi. Maybe that journey will be really helpful. So I was brought up in a small 
town in central part of india and i hail from a family which is into business so growing up you know from the community we come almost everyone in our community is like self employed and people from my paternal maternal side they have small businesses anything from a shop owner to a mid size business they would be running and uh, these are very bharat kind of businesses which are where you arrange your own capital you do debt syndication from informal markets you kind of learn uh, a lot of things over the uh, lunch conversations dinner conversations and from uh, family gathering it's all about talking about business so it was very unnatural to move to a science based you know undergraduation and consider those stem related work streams but my parents were quite sure that first education has to come and then sort of if business has to happen it has to only come second they always nudged me not to come into business typically my family's all cousins will be involved in businesses and this was a sort of a different trajectory what was very interesting was that i was very average student definitely not the top of my batch but somehow i had liking for stem subjects and uh, thankfully i got into iit bombay and uh, at iit bombay i realized that how much of a difference it makes that your peer group is so amazing i think the single biggest thing which iit is bringing to the table is the ecosystem so from professors to peer group and people who are exceptionally amazing they aspire to achieve more audacious goal or ambitious targets and that's what happened at iit bombay we were excited apart from academics it gave a good flavor of different aspects of from sports dramatics to managing you know festivals and what not so it was a very good experience and and the family upbringing sort of nudged me into a share market learning about business larger economy so there were sort of those two sides to the upbringing one was more stem oriented which came because of parents nudge and i also picked it up during my pre university days and the second was the business related aspect so at campus i finally got into uh, you know i took couple of courses related to stochastic modeling and economics and uh, yeah one thing led to another i i landed up with a job at jp morgan this was equity research analyst back in 2008 we were the children of recession and yeah i mean after that i wanted to start on my own did bunch of activities i would say tried my family business another venture and then finally uh, ended up starting a fintech startup which is to peak in 2015 so that's the journey in no amazing and uh, why did you pick this problem so can you elaborate a little bit more on that like lending seemed to be a very already explored lots of startups i mean even in 2015 there were quite a few that were trying to do this why get into a space that seems so competitive from the outside avril actually it's very uh, it's very much believed that the lending market is saturated but the problem is that uh, i believe lending is a very localized topic which is you know dictated by ecosystem economy uh, how regulators think and if you look at china the united states and india all three are like three different axes and you cannot have a same solution everywhere which will work in fact interestingly india has this insight which is hidden in plain sight and it's a very interesting one if you look at how indian household balance sheets are stacked uh, we have 95% of the wealth in indian household uh, which is locked into physical tangible objects and you can 
imagine any of your distant relative when you go to a tier 2 tier 3 town they would have a big house which majority of their one or two you know real estate properties where there a lot of savings of their uh, uh, are parked some gold will be there and vehicle and some consumer durable and you know about 5 to 10% even for us you know people like you and me for us also good chunk would be uh, demat but bigger chunk i would assume would be still real estate or other objects now barring those two top 2% of indian population this is too largely everywhere and this high asset ownership is very much in contrast uh, with the liability side where in india india is probably the only country where the secured borrowing as a percentage of household liabilities is lowest in the world whereas asset ownership is highest in the world so asset backed monetization is just not happening and even the 70% so about 60 to 70% of the borrowings in india are unsecured which is just the reverse of say a developed nation like a us or a uk where secured borrowing uh, is largest part and unsecured is the lowest here in india uh, 70% of unsecured borrowing comes from informal market now what happens is that when you are borrowing from informal market naturally your irr is going to be very high anywhere between 2% per month to 5% per month is what people are paying and it erodes their savings which essentially could have gone to a better standard of living education healthcare or or any other discretionary spend so this paradox where we are heavy on asset but on borrowing side we are lowest in the world in asset backed borrowing seemed like a very interesting opportunity and something one had to do something about it i think if india has to see this credit growth it has to come from secured borrowing uh, because it's a very unique prop india led problem and uh, data is not going to be good enough i mean even if data were to come suddenly magically for all of us uh, the quantum of loan you can write for future earnings are always going to be slightly more expensive than secured borrowing as well as the quantum could be lower so as a nation if we have to progress and credit has to percolate to the bottom most of the pyramid i think secured borrowing is going to play a big big role that's super interesting and it's a very good insight i actually hadn't thought of it that way and so then you pick this category there's obviously a lot of competition huge legacy players like mukkur manapuram uh, already exist what was your game plan seeing valentine's players already there in the market it could be great learning for other founders who are trying to break into already competitive markets with large legacy players i think you know every sector every uh, business has its own play and how you want to structure the journey is could be very very different for example if you are playing in a market where winner takes it all you need to play it a different way if you are playing in financial services you have to play it in a different way. so the way i thought about our initial days of journey that i was convinced that if longevity is there in your business then given how indian regulations have shaped given how you know last few years you can see the nbfcs accruing and creating so much value in the ecosystem i knew that we have to make sure that there is a cash cow in the business and we are able to scale the business around it so when i started i really didn't think that we'll be raising venture capital at all it started with a very different notion that there is margin there is a problem and there is a real market underlying it so if we are able to solve this problem in a meaningful way and take a very small segment of customer who are happy with the services will be able to build a very very small scale business and the capital required was probably available from either hni individuals or whatnot during the journey we realized that probably you know and, and at the beginning 
एटलीस्ट इन माय माइंड इट इट कुड हैव बीन बोथ प्योर बैलेंस शीट प्ले और प्योर मार्केट प्लेस प्ले द डेटा पॉइंट्स आर वेरी लिटिल टू नो एंड जीरो एक्सपीरियंस टू अंडरस्टैंड हाउ एग्जैक्टली द जर्नी इज गोइंग टू पैन आउट सो द गिवन द एम्बिगिटी व्हाट द स्टेप्स वी टुक वर टू मेक श्योर दैट वी आर एबल टू क्रैक अ प्रोडक्ट मार्केट फिट एंड टेक आर टाइम टू बिल्ड द प्रोसेसेस अराउंड इट टेक अ यू नो अंडरस्टैंड द की पॉइंटर्स व्हिच इज लाइक क्रेडिट अंडर राइटिंग how do you source customers how do you retain them how do you make sure that lender relationships are built and then take it to the next level so yeah i mean that's a sort of a nutshell answer of how we started a topic for for this episode is getting to know your customers and that's of course so important in your business uh, but first can you help us understand your business a, a bit more you have focused mostly on gold loans uh, is that by design do you think Are you going to continue focusing on just gold loans, or are you going to look at other uh, asset-backed loans in the future? How do you see uh, this evolving from here? Sure, Mahesh. So, if you look at the all great companies, whether in India or outside India, have had enormous focus in creating their first foundational success, which was sort of a cash cow and led to growth in other business verticals. So, for Reliance, it was Jamnagar Refinery. for uh, adani it was their coal enterprise uh, if you look at google it was their search engine the rtd platform or you know uh, even even for apple they had two three such you know instances in the past i believe that we will continue to focus in gold till the time we we are able to create a cash cow around it and that could take we have spent already 5 years that could take some more time but we have started you know launching some uh, very very early stage experiments around it around new asset classes but again the idea is not to jump into new asset classes we'll continue to sort of remain as number one player in the gold and that will require lot of more time focus commitment so not any time soon you would see us diversifying into multiple asset classes but yeah i mean in my mind the journey is 10 20 year long so there is no rush to you know sort of launch other asset classes right away yeah no definitely makes sense uh, and what about your customer base can you help us understand how you segment your customers and where do you see growth coming from so very interestingly the customer segment is every single person every single household in india has gold so potentially you can target all of them currently where we are focusing is actually a majority of our customers are new to gold people who were who had not taken gold loan before and uh, the interesting part is that gold monetization in india is only in still higher single digits there's a whole vast of indian gold holding which is yet to be monetized and what we are finding as a success is um, we are finding a lot of uh, first time borrowers preferring rupee as the potential lending partner and take loans from the platform that is the customer segment we are going after in terms of where they sit in the you know sort of borrower pyramid of india they would be uh, at the middle of the pyramid so our key focus area is to serve the you know middle of india which is say self employed gentlemen or ladies folks who are working at you know salaried if they are salaried they are working at mid position managerial level with a household income of about you know somewhere close to 6 lakh or 8 lakh in that range and uh, the reason they borrow is either to use that capital for working capital requirement or consumption smoothing requirement 
yeah that's the tg we are currently catering to and as you'd expect you have a really good understanding of this target group of yours how did you a you know go about acquiring them and then you know kind of throughout your journey how did you uh, i guess evolve your understanding of your customers and, and their needs that's an interesting question i think the understanding keeps on evolving i would say that even today uh, we go and meet customers hear their stories now due to corona the travel is severely restricted so we end up having virtual conversations but the interesting thing is that the learning is uh, an ongoing process there is no one definition and as you learn more about them you learn about their consumption practices their uh, entertainment preferences you understand them how to target and where to target so you know thanks to all these new channels from youtube bumper ad to digital marketing and offline uh, affiliates there are a whole bunch of channels which we get to learn by talking to our consumers uh, we do a quick ab testing in terms of the messaging the channel the, and see where is the most effective uh, roi which can be obtained and go about building those channels as the mainstream channels to acquire customers for ourselves so you mentioned the offline affiliate model can you tell us a bit more about that i think most of us know about uh, you know acquiring customers online but specifically for your target group i think uh, would love to know how you reach them offline it's pretty much same uh, as it would be as online where you look for node if if you advertise at that node you will be able to reach out to as many customers as possible and in digital marketing of course you have perfect precision to target people or near perfect precision to target people offline equivalent would be you know there are lot of these communities trading communities which have their events there are uh, uh, local resellers who have stockists or super stockists who have multiple vendors who keep on borrowing from them so having a network of these guys who understand the value which we bring to the table and they also benefit because if their buyers have a smooth working capital they will and, and lower cost of capital in turn it benefits them so we find such nodes in the offline world it takes some effort to build them but now we have sort of a playbook where we are able to use these nodes very effectively in a cost effective way to acquire customers it's slightly you know more expensive than the online world but the scale is far more uh, deeper as compared to the online world that's really interesting uh, and curious you know i mean obviously with the lending business you need to understand your customers and 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 kind of evaluate the risk associated with it how have you guys kind of gone about doing that and improved over the last 5 years like what sort of data are you looking at uh, to kind of evaluate risk when you're giving out loans i mean obviously there's there's a lot of different factors but but kind of curious about how that's sort of changed as your understanding of your customers has evolved and and or has that stayed static sure i think the given that this is asset back lending the credit risk models are to the extent of and tracking fraud tracking uh, you know a likely default which could lead because of they are borrowing for a speculative activity so what we try and do is to ensure that none of such unwanted end use cases happen and over the last few years the way we have been able to lower this is by using internal data uh, we have a system where we tag customers and potentially negative list of customers and negative list of borrowers who we believe have been either involved or could 
potentially lead to a fraud. We also collect data points from local sources, from legal you know, sources. We, we collect data from credit bureaus. Basically, it's like a mosaic theory. Some of parts, you know, lead to give us a sense of indication that we'll probably not go into this transaction. And uh, given that this particular customer could result into an NPA or a loss, we try to mitigate that. So is the model perfect? Probably not, but we are far better in terms of uh, our prediction as we were, say, two, three years back. Which brings me to another question that I've I've been wondering for a while now. Since you guys own the relationship with the customers and since you guys have, you know, this data, why are you guys still lending through bank partners instead of keeping it on your own books? So that's a very interesting question, Ali. So if you really think about it, I think the beauty of any uh, business is to have higher ROEs um, and, and capital efficiency comes, you know, is one of the important ingredients for higher ROEs. Now, if you were to lend only from your own balance sheet, um, you know, naturally ROEs are going to be range bound. But if you have capital efficiency, the, these higher ROEs help you sort of focus more on customers, prod, invest in product, technology, hire the best kind of talent. And, uh, it's just a more capital efficient way to grow. But yeah, I mean, we are, having now co-origination model with our lending partner where we do put some skill in the game, but effectively it has significantly higher leverage and higher ROI thereby. And just to uh, help our listeners understand, what exactly do you mean by by ROE and, and how does that you know, kind of factor into your business? Sure. ROE, return over equity. So the way, the reason, you know, some of these marketplaces or technology companies are loved and valued aggressively by investors is because of their ability to uh, generate return for them by investing very little capital you get enormous return for example very loosely speaking uh, in a crude way you can imagine that for a flip card or an e-commerce level very large uh, platform the technology stack which they have built has a uh, certain equity investment which was required which sort of sits in the denominator and you have entire GMV, the net income which is arising out of that GMV, which is routing through it. So without actually having those physical brick and mortar stores, the huge human capital required, the inventory which they would have, working capital inventory which they would have owned on their uh, P&L would have bloated up this equity requirement significantly if they were not like a marketplace. And uh, the asset light model where they are using this technology platform to conduct end-to-end processes allows them to earn like a a full-stack company, but the equity investment which goes into earning that income or sort of which enables that income is only for the technology platform, the logistics platform which they have built. Of course, you know, the scale required, the investment required is massive, but I believe the, not today, but say in seven to 10 years, the GMB and the net income these platforms will be able to generate will be enormously high. And uh, there are some success stories across the world. You can see Facebook, Google, uh, you know, th- th- these guys have absolutely eBay, one of the most successful Amazon, have been uh, sort of a pioneer in this uh, high ROE businesses. And um, some of them have not made as much profit, but reinvested those profits, which is like Amazon. And uh, today the scale and the ability to generate the top line is massive because of that continuous reinvestment. 
So that's what I meant by high ROE businesses. In lending, creating a high ROE business is inherently very difficult. There are reasons uh, around it because for uh, anyone to believe in your credit underwriting and provide their balance sheet, it's extremely difficult. There are models which are like securitization led and where you can generate high ROE models. And what we are doing is one of those models where we sort of co-originate these loans with the banks and uh, are able to create a high high return business. And I wanted to ask you one more question a bit about uh, the products. You mentioned that you're experimenting a bit with a few A-B tests. So would love to hear more about that. And was also curious when you're picking a product, how important is looking at this return on equity? Is that a, a decision factor in picking product, new products to experiment with? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, you you build a business to solve a problem which exists, right? Either for a consumer or a lender or a business. And then it could be solved with own balance sheet as well. It's a choice. A customer doesn't care whether you are an asset-light business or a asset-heavy business. And there are several good examples where asset-heavy businesses have done well, whether it is, you know, um, say, petroleum industry or a Taj or a Oberoi or a you know, hospitality industry. Of course, there are good models and asset-light models there as well. But point is that customer really cares about is how you are solving my problem, how are you solving my needs. And it could be either business or a retail consumer. What I meant by high ROE is the business design choice or a strategic choice which you might or might not be able to take given the constraint in your business, in your industry. Why being asset-light is useful is because you don't have to raise as much capital you remain nimble on balance sheet and hence your returns are better. Because your returns are better, you're able to reinvest that in, again, technology, product, attracting talent, give better salaries as compared to market. So it kind of leads to that virtuous cycle, which um, uh, we have seen in the uh, some of the global countries has led to significant value creation. And I believe that is one of the business design choices, but that doesn't mean that uh, asset-heavy businesses are necessarily bad. In fact, uh, asset light businesses are a very recent this thing and what has enabled is the technology the internet ecosystem which has enabled these businesses otherwise historically we have always had full stack businesses that's uh, i mean it's pretty beautiful how you have split the two things where your customer decision making and business architecture is thought of differently but in sync at a very high level it's very cool i actually uh, tell a lot of my founder friends that the founder is basically an architect and the ar- architecture of the business is being defined by the founder and i think you hit the nail on the head how are you you know building this architecture to respond to competition and you know covid has been such a big impact on uh, businesses of every kind regardless of whether it's positive or negative uh, could you talk about how you are thinking of present competition impact of covid the future as well as how the business architecture is such that it responds to these demands which are external not internal i think um, you know competition is always going to be there it's it's helpful they they certainly keep you on your toes so healthy competition is definitely welcome and you know it just pushes you to think deep and hard about your business and the problems you are facing what we really do here is that we we look at the opportunity which lies in front of us at rupee and what we are excited is that we have sort of grown more than 9x, 10x year on year. And how can we keep the scale uh, going? Because the opportunity at hand is unprecedented. And the way 
our team has shaped up we know that if we keep the entire execution to very simple basic points of continuing to doubling down on consumer needs understanding them better and serving them in the best possible way you attain certain scale and you know certain uh, network effect both with consumers lenders other ecosystem participants and you don't have to necessarily worry about competition that's what we truly believe in and we are focusing on that and uh, what about covid uh, the impact of the pandemic people at home yeah so certainly i think the covid has created uh, you know negativity around well being of your teams we we had instances you know i still remember when the first case happened at uh, in our team and it happened uh, i think in second or third lockdown and it was uh, we just couldn't understand what what's going on and it was such a tough time we had several team members who had their family got infected fortunately none of them you know faced a extremely critical case due to covid and uh, for teams it was not great at all it was heartbreaking to see how things were panning out uh, on the business front also it was a complete shutdown we saw things slowing down to virtually to zero in april i think and then may it started bouncing back but even uh, for the next couple of months from may onwards it was very struggling that there was demand in the market which was the pent up demand but the ability to service was just not there and even today uh, we keep on seeing some lockdown at pin code level in various cities uh, so you know we did couple of steps to sort of take care of this so we right at the start of covid we were growing crazily we had to start uh, looking at how do we rationalize fixed cost how do we move from a human capital intensive to technology led processes in various aspect of our business uh, so we shed some cost we rationalized some of the processes uh, we looked at our cash runway and how effectively we are utilizing the cash in bank so yeah i mean it in the hindsight it led to some pnl improvement we are far uh, better in unit economics as we were pre covid a lot of our cities turned profitable during the same time yeah i mean the challenge really shapes you in a positive way if the team has the best of morale and believe that collectively we can overcome this problem similar thing happened in our case i think one of i mean it's an observation i'm making and it's a wonderful thing how you spoke about your team first it's awesome and and you know from a personal standpoint and maybe as a founder over the last 5 years doing this what's been your one or two big insights or learnings more from a you know running a business leading a team uh, and not really specific industry insight as such quite a few i would say um, one of the things is that as a founder you have to especially in zero to one you have to be okay let me start with a one which i keep on telling my team as well i think one thing all of us should remember is that in life you cannot escape pareto the 80 20 principle so first thing as a founder you you are always going to be short on bandwidth you are always going to struggle for resources you have to ruthlessly prioritize what are those 20% of the item which will generate 80% of now and i think that is one thing which i have realized that a lot of time you start as a perfectionist you say that no i want to be great at all of these things which i'm doing the fact is that it's not it's not necessary that those 80% of the items in count will explain a good part of your success or will even lead to your success so having that ruthless prioritization at any stage of the organization 
is extremely extremely critical that is one second is that you know when it comes to team building and hiring and what not i think very important to uh, make sure and you would remember avidan because uh, we had uh, worked together in the previous venture as well it's very critical to get the initial team right because if the team uh, you know first 10 members of your team are mercenaries then god save you it's extremely uncomfortable situation to be in because next 100 people are going to be the similar of the similar dna of the first 10 people you are going to recruit and so on and so forth so if you end up with a mercenary all of those 100 people will be mercenary and you will wonder what kind of culture i have built thinking deep and hard on that and optimizing for the next 12 months in an early stage company is very critical uh, sure you might you might be super successful one day and uh, you might want to recruit people which will help you do that but the question you should be asking first is that are those folks going to move you from a position a to a higher position b in the span of next 12 months and do they have the required skill set to make that transition happen if not again be ruthless set the right expectation recruit the right people and in case if you are not recruited the right set of people cut your losses early oh, absolutely makes sense culture scales i guess that that's how i would put it <laughs> culture scales too so as our closing question we ask all our guests uh, and there is a reason why we call it founders unfiltered what's one piece of unfiltered feedback or advice that you've got over your career and you know we we love honest maybe brutally honest answers as well which really shaped you and uh, impacted the way you operate changed the way you operate from someone some one person or group of people sure i think this was uh, we we had a very conscious approach to building the right cost structure and you know uh, i always thought that recruiting even in central team as a cost center this was a big big mistake in the hindsight that those are like investment centers and as a as a founder i did a mistake of not being able to appreciate what is a cost and what is an investment and it took me some time to identify the shortcoming it for in fact one of our investors had pointed it out that chumit look if you want to scale uh, your business you need to invest in the right leaders of course there are right ways to go about it between cash equity stock split all of those things are okay but if you don't invest there then you are being penny wise pound foolish and that i think was a mistake which i've been doing for a long period of time uh, once we corrected that i could see the difference great leaders great team member colleagues they help your business propel at a velocity which you just can't imagine yeah so that that is one advice which i've got and which i think anyone who has found product market fit should definitely take serious that's brilliant i think the investment approach like look at people as investments i think that's unique i, I know people maybe subconsciously do it but nobody is articulated it that way so thanks a lot sumit for your time really enjoyed this conversation learned a lot in the process i mean that's i think that's why mazen and i do it oh my pleasure thank you so much for tuning in to founders unfiltered hope you enjoyed this week's episode Join us next week for another episode of AJVC Unfiltered, where we talk about our latest piece 